there are few shows in podcast history that are as dedicated to the 1980s as 80s all over. But in order to really dig into the decade, it's going to take another couple someones to help lend a hand. Drew McWeenie, Scott Weinberg, Brian Salisbury, and C. Robert Cargill are going to run down all the sweet, sweet schlock in the kind of giant-sized crossover they stopped doing during the Reagan era. Rip off the wrapper and pop the top with us. It's junk food cinema all over. And welcome back to another bonus episode of 80s All Over. I am Scott Weinberg. As always, I am joined by my illustrious co-host, uh, Drew McQueenie. And Drew and I are joined by two mutual friends this time, uh, two guys who have a very popular podcast. But what I love is that Drew and I have been friends with these guys long before podcasts were even a gleam in the podcast daddy's eye. They didn't exist. Drew, why don't you introduce our friends? First up, uh, for those of you who are long time, long time, long time, because you'd have to be at this point, Ain't It Cool fans or Ain't It Cool readers or Ain't It Cool survivors, however you want to put it, um, you're going to be delighted because this may be the first ever recorded collision between myself and C. Robert Cargill. Hi, everybody. I don't think we've ever done a this kind of a thing before i don't think we've ever sat down and done this I, on tape i don't so. think we have i mean the number of times we've been in the same place and hung out but we've not actually ever been recorded together so now the, the proof is in the pudding we are not the same person bigfoot is real wow um to uh, most of our listeners will know c robert cargill from uh, he co-wrote with the great scott derrickson he wrote uh, sinister he wrote doctor strange he's also a novelist uh who wrote sea of rust two well-regarded fantasy novels with titles I can never remember. <laughs> and he has a horror anthology coming up this summer. So, uh, it, but my favorite statistic about C. Robert Cargill is that if you were to go into his house, he owns the most pewter of anybody <laughs> in Austin, Texas. That might be close to true. We are also joined today by your illustrious co-host, and I want to get him in here for a moment because I want to hear him talk about dealing with all of this pewter i have only heard of it i have only heard rumor of it i have never witnessed it but brian salisbury please please tell me how you deal with this well first of all when you kept saying pewter i thought you meant how he refers to his computer when he's had too much scotch uh, <laughs> hey oh hey brian ease up we're listed under <laughs> film podcasts not common <laughs> boy ain't that the case uh, no, I, I I find it relatively easy to avoid all the pewter as long as, you know, there are some days we come in and record and I think, oh, it's all going to be relegated to his office. But then there is an elaborate, giant battlefield set up on a table in the middle of his living room. And I have to admit, I get a little worried as to what is going to take place because it's either a game of Warhammer or somebody's getting sacrificed to something. Mm hmm. We asked Cargill and Brian uh, to to come up with uh, some of their favorite topics related to the decade uh, of which this podcast is dedicated, which is, I believe, the 1940s. And Brian uh, came up with uh, I'll let Brian introduce. Let's turn it over to a special 80s all over report with Brian Salisbury. Well, thank you, Scott. Yeah, uh, the 80s happens to house possibly the weirdest and most wonderful subgenre of all time, and that is the 80s post-apocalyptic knockoff film from Italy. 
Um, and I have to credit C. Robert Cargill for getting me into the genre by showing me uh, 2019 after the fall of New York on a an old decrepit VHS tape one with, afternoon. With Michael Sopkiu. Michael Sopkiu, who I believe the Mystery Science Theater guys referred to as a, a man who sounds like his name is spelled sideways. Yeah, I don't, and I can't, I can't argue with that. Yeah, when we did this, it was part of one of the greatest triple features I've ever shown. Uh, I had a whole room full of people who had not seen either of the uh, the Death Race movies. So we started off with Death Race 2000, and then followed it up with Death Race, and then for those that stuck around at midnight, which was like five people of which Brian was one of them, I pulled out after the fall of New York and, and, and just Brian just stared at me and he's like, what the hell is this? And I'm like, have you never seen an Italian knockoff film before? And he goes, what's an Italian knockoff film? And it was like, I can only imagine drew you, you'd understand this. The moment you first see your child when he's born and that you see that look in his eyes, you go, I'm going to love this person for the rest of my life. That was the look Brian had in his eyes uh, when he discovered the, the Italian knockoff film. And by the end of it, he was in such elated joy that he then ran out the next day and started instantly watching every single Italian film he could find. And it was, should be noted, should be noted for the record that C. Robert Carter is not a father does not have children oh but he's dead right on this and i get it i get when you discover i get when you discover a genre that you love and this encompasses one of my very favorite things brian i i cannot describe the joy i get when a movie begins and they have a date that the movie takes place and it was in the future when they made the film but it is now in our past there is nothing that makes me happier than the year is 1993 the robots have taken control i am in heaven when that happens you know what i like about it is even broader than that and both cargill and brian and and drew could speak on this um it doesn't matter what the genre is. It could be musicals by Disney. It could be slasher movies. It could be post-apocalyptic knockoff movies. But you find one or two movies that you love, and then there's this thing in your brain where there are six more of these out there. I have to find them. Oh, my gosh. The completionism. It, like I, It's my only form of OCD. If I know one movie exists in a franchise, I have to see them all. And this, like, I consider these all one franchise because in any given – first of all, the way that they're named – you could be convinced that two movies that are very different are the exact same movie because you have a movie like Warriors of the Wasteland. <laughs> I, no, just to interject real quick, that was the first one I saw. Warriors of the Wasteland had this awesome thorny MI clamshell and a red cover, and it was badass. But I always then I ended up confusing Warriors of the Wasteland with Warriors of the Apocalypse and then World Going Wild, which was American. And that's the thing is both Warriors of the Wasteland and Warrior of the Lost World feature Fred the Hammer Williamson, who I've said before, I'm pretty sure shot all 37 of these movies that he was in while he was in Italy for two weeks on vacation. He would actually do that. He would go to Italy on vacation and then shoot a movie. If they weren't shooting movies, he knew where to get the money and he would write a movie over the course of a couple days and then he would shoot it. That's how something like Mr. Mean happened. Robert Forrester was talking about working with him on a movie and, uh, and he was just over to the side with a notebook. And Robert's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm writing my next movie. Uh, we're going to shoot it after I'm done with this one. Like, he would literally just write movies and notebooks, get the money from Italians, go over to Italy on vacation, and just shoot these fucking crazy movies. And I got to give Cargo credit. He's absolutely right in that 
Uh, it was like seeing your child born for the first time. In fact, when my child was actually born, the most friction I ever had with my wife was when I wanted to name him Enzo Castellari Salisbury and oh, got shot down. Drop, babe, we get it. You you have working semen. Big deal. <laughs> Believe me, Brian, I had a list of names that I put out there first in order to smuggle Toshiro across the finish line. So <laughs> I, you, you don't know terror until you propose Geronimo as a baby name. <laughs> And then you watch your wife go, oh, my God, I'm actually going to be sedated at the end of this thing. There's going to be a few minutes. This lunatic might get away with this. It's exactly like when you needed 20 bucks from your parents and you'd be like, oh, this trip's going to cost 50 bucks. And you'd go, <laughs> I go, I can give you 25. All right. Thanks, Mom. Have we all thrown out some titles? We covered Warriors of the Wasteland. Brian, rate these on an Italian schlock uh, 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 scale. Five, disc- five stars. Warriors of the Wasteland. Warriors of the Wasteland is is one of the lesser. Uh, I definitely think your top tier are going to be 1990, the Bronx Warriors, and 2019, after the fall of New York, which, by the way, guys, means next year, according to the Italians, is one of the many years that the apocalypse has happened. They are as <laughs> accurate as the Mayan calendar, and you can do as much research to kind of track it year to year. That's weird, because if it's 2019 is after the fall of New York, that means the fall of New York has to happen this year. Holy shit. That just blew my mind right out the side of my ears. Wow. Uh, but again, if you are uh, uh, if you are interested in these kind of mostly enjoyable, sometimes tiresome, but very colorful, schlocky movies, uh, hit up Brian on the Twitter. He is Bry Guy Salisbury, and it's spelled just like it sounds. It's spelled just like the steak. Well, I've never heard crickets during an audio recording before, but there they are. Oh, oh, you missed you missed it earlier when Weinberg was telling some jokes. No, I just no, I didn't know Bobby could edit them into the recording as well as the final product. Yeah. All right. So so Cargo, we've we've talked about this movie already. And um, it's funny that you mentioned Robert Forrester, because I do. I I got to chat with him at Ebert Fest one year, and it was before sort of the resurgence of Robert Forrester had really kicked in. He was he was remarkably honest about that that era of his career and how, you know, so much of that stuff was generated so quickly. But every now and then you would come across a piece of writing and you go, oh, I got something I can really do here. And I think one of the scripts where he genuinely had stuff to do was Alligator, the John Sayles film. Um, I love that early era of John Sayles exploitation writing. I think he was one of the very best at it, and I don't think he ever treated it like slumming. I think he treated those films the same way he treated everything else he wrote, whether it be a novel or something personal. I think John always brought his A-game and was always on point. So I'm with you in your fondness for Battle Beyond the Stars, but I'd love to hear more about what you think. Well, that's that's a big part of it. I mean, what John Sayles brings to to this movie is fantastic. Like what essentially Roger Corman just he and his producer were pitching things around and one of the ideas that they came up with in a meeting is the Magnificent Seven in space and uh, which of course is a remake of the Seven Samurai and so they went to John Sayles and they said do you think you could do this and he's like yeah I could write the Seven Samurai in space so they he went and sat down to write it and he wrote he, you, you're absolutely correct he never slummed it he always treated it with respect he was always trying to add another layer of something to it and what I love about this movie is, first of all, the Seven Samurai story is one of my favorite stories. It's an awesome template, even in like 
even in Bugs Life or or Three Amigos. It's just a great template. It really is. And what I really love about how most filmmakers approach the Seven Samurai trope is that they understand that what really matters is the journey of the 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 characters that are going to defend this place and who lives and who dies. And it's always fascinating how they do it. In the original Seven Samurai, you know, the the young kid who wants to be a samurai dies and the final line of that movie is so beautiful which is you know the you know truly he was the seventh samurai and then you go to the american version of it with magnificent seven and uh uh the kid lives and the kid decides he doesn't want to be a gunfighter and he wants to be a farmer and he was an idiot all along and that adds a profoundness to the ending and then you get to magnificent seven and john sales says what if they all die what if they all die in defense of this planet they don't give a shit about? And that movie is fascinating and it is heartbreaking and it all of the characters are really cool. They are all well drawn. Everybody's getting into what they're doing. I love that Robert Vaughn is literally reprising his role from Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Yeah, that's a genius touch. Man. Yeah, he's playing the same guy. He's playing the mercenary character. Uh, and then he has this tr- truly tragic ending where he dies, you know, defending the planet, but he doesn't want to die. And they give him this touching, hey, we promised him, you know, a, a place to hide and, and a hot meal. So bury him with a hot meal. And you just know. And John Sayles clearly makes it clear just through the cleverness of the writing that that's not what this guy wanted at all. And it's it's a depressing ending for this guy. It's not this is a movie that should be pure popcorn and camp. And instead, it is a movie that's got a lot of soul mixed in with a lot of fun. I saw this movie on the big screen when I was five years old and fell in love with it. And I've carried it with me my whole life. It used to play on, you know, the UHF and VHF channels back in the day um, uh, as a Saturday afternoon matinee. And then I tracked it down on VHS in the 90s and, and watched it so many times. And there's just so much great subtlety to what goes on in this movie uh, and so much incredibly young talent. We've talked about John Sayles, but of course, this is the second score by James Horner. James Horner would then he loved this story so much. He was hired by Antoine Fuqua to do the score uh, for Magnificent Seven, which came out in 2016. And he actually echoes his score from Battle Beyond the Stars. He, he wove themes from Battle Beyond the Stars into his Magnificent Seven uh, score to create this beautiful bookend to his career. His final score and one of his first scores are literally tied, tied together. And at and there's a beautiful poetry to that um, that is that kills me because we lost him way too love, early. Uh, um, when we were kids, there were tons of space movies that were either inspired by the success of star Wars or were straight ripoffs. And as kids, we just knew this movie's good. This movie sucks. The space Raiders is not good, but battle be battle beyond the stars is damn good. I, I, it's why I kind of don't like the word ripoff or knockoff because it, it, that phrase makes it sound very cheap and tacky. When in fact, this movie was inspired by the success of star Wars, obviously, but it's its own movie too, uh, and and that's that's what I love about it. Yeah, you can't just start from I'm ripping something off and there I'm done. It's if you're gonna if you're gonna make a movie, it, you know, Piranha is a great example of this as well. Uh, if you're gonna make a movie that's being made because something else was a success, that just means you have an opportunity to make a movie. You can make 
any movie at that point. It can be good. <laughs> so. It's it's funny that you mentioned Space Raiders because uh, uh, the visual effects for this and the design of this was uh, done by a young Jimmy Cameron. And Jimmy was just a model painter who wanted to move up in the art department because of all these uh, screw-ups along the way. He ended up becoming uh, uh, the art director for this. He created those visual effects of the ships, and Roger Corman loved them so much because he felt he owned them. He used them in subsequent at least six films, Space Raiders being one of them, where he handed these effect shots to a oh, creative he, he team and said, build a movie uh, around. And space design, you know, like the spray painted uh, uh, cup holders that were the interiors in a spaceship in Galaxy of Terror would show up as a computer panel in in uh, Forbidden Planet or Forbidden. Uh, but I wanted to ask Brian, Brian, how would how would you describe Dabney Coleman in two words? First rate. Thank you. All the way. Thank you. Yeah, I, I want to also, by the way. Uh, I didn't know I was allowed to talk during this segment. Sorry about that. Uh, so I think it's hilarious that we're talking about how much is recycled and we mentioned the James Horner score. Corman used that for about five other of his movies to promote it. So you hear that score over and over again in movies like in the trailer for movies like Sorceress. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's all throughout Sorceress. In fact, part of the reason Sorceress stumbles along the way is they try to make this big, huge, wonderful score work with this cheesy, terrible sex romp. I really love that kind of filmmaking school that that Corman ran. And it's really no wonder that the guys that came out of it, guys like Dante, were guys that ate and breathed film in the first place. You. I think in order to go work there, you'd have to either be so cynical that you don't care anything about what's coming out or so 100% in love with film that you're willing to do it for nothing and just do it because you love it. And I think that was 90% of who ran through there, man. Uh, A lot of screenwriters start their careers with B-movies, okay? And even if they're bad, a lot of those screenwriters move on to much better things. But... The reason John Sayles is a great among greats is that his original, his first several screenplays were Piranha, Return of the Secaucus 7, Lady in Red, Alligator, Battle Beyond the Stars, The Howling, and The Challenge. And after The Challenge, then he started to do his own. He did Liana, he did Baby It's You, he did Brother from Another Planet. And all of those genre films that he did to get his feet in the door and to get paid are all quality genre films. So you can you can start at the quote unquote bottom making low rent uh, B movies, but you could still write good stuff. Oh, well, actually, okay. So this this brings us to the larger point of having you guys on this week, which is for those who don't listen to Junk Food Cinema or haven't been exposed to the podcast, I'm kind of interested in how you landed on the name of the podcast and what you decided your purview was, how you decided what you're going to cover under that banner because it gives you a pretty broad mandate for what you can do. But how did you guys settle on? This is what we want to talk about. This is how we're going to wrap it. And, and this is what we think qualifies. Well, uh, Brian, why don't you talk about the name and I'll talk about how it came about. Yeah. Uh, so the name actually came from, it started off life as a column that I wrote for film school reject starting in about 2009 And the name came from the fact that I feel that movies sometimes are very much like junk food in that, you know, I I will watch and enjoy and consume a movie that I know 
has no nutritional value. It has no, uh, there's no depth to it. There's no weight to it. There's nothing critically that someone is going to look at and say, this is a good film by AFI standards. It's not going to win a lot of awards necessarily. Like eating Cool Whip straight out of the fridge. Exactly. It's, you have a craving for it. It satisfies that craving, you know, regardless of its critical merits, uh, whatever the nutrition label says, you're still, you still find yourself craving the experience of consuming that movie. So for me, that's, that's why I called it junk food cinema. I wrote that column for a number of years. And then in about 2014, Cargill and I decided to kind of take it a step further. Yeah, uh, essentially. So you guys will all remember this, but uh, you know, in 2008, 2009, I saw that the, the, you know, the film critic world was about to uh, start getting decimated, that there were just too many outlets. Uh, corporations had kind of taken over too many of them. And I just saw that there probably wasn't a job for me in five years. And I realized it was time to start working on getting out. So I started working on a book. Uh, and then that led to, you know, me getting in with a screenwriting career. And I was able in 2011 to leave, uh, being a film critic. And there's a lot of stuff I don't miss about being a film critic. I don't miss having to come up with a thousand words on a mediocre film that I'm never going to think of again. I don't miss having to wake up early on a Saturday to go see an Eddie Murphy, uh, family comedy. Like I don't miss these things, but I really, really missed talking about great films, gems, stuff from the past. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff we focused on uh, uh, in the AICN days of just turning other film geeks on to cool stuff and saying, hey, look at this thing I found. And I really missed that. And me and Brian were sitting on my couch having a couple beers and we were talking and I brought up Battle Truck. And he's like, what the hell is a Battle Truck? And I'm like, oh my God, Brian, you need Battle Truck in your life. And I was like, see, this is what I miss. And he battle, goes, well, wait, did you say battle truck? I said battle, battle truck. truck. <laughs> <laughs> battle truck. Um, and, uh, uh, and so other, otherwise known as warlords of the 21st century. But so we were talking about that and I said, see, this is what I miss. And he goes, well, maybe we should do a podcast about that. He said, I would do that. He goes, I've been wanting to do something with junk food cinema again. Um, and I kind of want to do something like this. And I said, well, yeah, let's do that. And so we sat down and talked about what the core idea was. And the core idea is we virtually never talk about a movie one of us doesn't like. Like we have to both enjoy it. Uh, and hopefully we both love it. Uh, the quality of it is unimportant. And the question is, is do we sit down on the couch and watch this? And is it something that l makes us feet reminds us of why we love movies? Yeah, what I, and what I like about the podcast Cargill, uh, is that, um, I have, had people ask me recommend you know, recommend podcast to me because I am the co-host of an exceedingly popular podcast in Philadelphia, and um, <laughs> what's that one called, Scott? <laughs> uh, what I like about junk food cinema is that they seem to have the approach of a uh, we hate movies or a the flop house, which they're two funny guys, uh, but whereas those guys are comedians who are kind of making fun and, and appreciating, but also mainly making fun. You guys do it the other way around, which is not 90 or 80% appreciation and 20% snark. And that's what I like. Well, that was very important to me. I feel like if you ignore certain movies like Cobra, for example, if you just look at Cobra as a terrible action movie and you spend the whole time, you know, knocking how bad Stallone is in it, you kind of miss the fact that there are 
really interesting like political subtext things going on based on when it was made. And I just think that there are merits to be found in even the worst of movies. And we wanted to have a bad movie podcast that was, yeah, we know this is bad, but here's why we love it anyway. And he cuts a pizza in half with scissors. Like a human being I mean, never <laughs> does. <laughs> like, you yeah. can't talk about Cobra without talking about pizza, man. Come on. All right. All right. So uh, I, I, let, let, let's try a little game here. Drew and I are going to throw out uh, uh, titles of 80s films. Uh, I, oh, and by the way. Uh, I, I didn't want to bring this up on air, but uh, I noticed recently that you guys did a um, Denzel watching thon and and therein you covered a couple of films from the 80s. That's going to be a problem. We're going to have to ask you to not cover that decade anymore at all. Um, we've actually got our law uh, law firm uh, involved, and they're they're going to serve you a cease and desist. We now have actually patented the eighties. They are. Yeah, ours. I hope that's okay. I hope you guys. Sorry. Are cool. Yeah. Sorry, we uh, don't mean to take it off the table. That just, might explain yeah. why the guy kept coming to my house and saying you've been served. But what it didn't explain is why he was doing it as part of a dance off competition. Like you've sent, uh, I think you've sent the wrong guy you? to serve me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. See, not only did you get served, but <laughs> Brian saved the rec center. That's true. I did. Oh, all right, let me ask you this. Uh, I know you guys are fans of junk food cinema, but are you both fans of junk food? Oh God. Oh, yes. absolutely. Have you looked at us? Yes, oh, of course we are. Oh, come on, man. Cargill's fan. Uh, I am only because I just dieted for three months and I broke my diet ended last night and I started off with fajitas and I'm having breakfast tacos for breakfast. Brian, and, uh, Brian Drew and I are going to throw out titles alternatively and you are going to tell us what junk food or junk food meal uh, pairs best with that film. Nice. All right, let's do it. All right, Drew, you want to go first? Uh, I am going to say The Long Riders. That's easy. That's an ice cream. That, that's a root beer float. That is that is a sarsaparilla <laughs> topped with a nice big scoop of old-fashioned vanilla. Brian, do you confirm? I, I, I think that's a great one. I think that's absolutely the, – the thing I was thinking is there's two chains of burgers here in Austin, Franz and Dan's, uh, that are each run by one half of a formerly married couple. So – so the, each of these burger places is run by one half of a formerly married couple that split everything up. And I was just thinking if you got one burger from Franz and one burger from Dan's and had that family reunion, that would be like the multiple family reunions going on in the Long oh, Riders. There we go. A lot of shoe leather. But you all right, you got somewhere. I like I like well it. Well done. Uh, well done. Nice all right. payoff. What junk food pairs well with extra? Oof. Oh. Something goopy. Uh, oh, you no, know, you know what it is? Um, you definitely want to go with something that, uh, like an M&M knockoff that you get at a convenience store on a long road trip. <laughs> Six lists. <laughs> yeah. That there terrible, terrible, like it looks like it, but it's two packs for a dollar. So it's a better deal than the M&Ms. And then you instantly regret it when you get in the car. Brian. I, I, oh, that was not a better deal. Not a no, better deal no, at no, all. No, no. I'm, I, I'm still I don't gonna... know if it counts as junk food, but like. A barely a barely cooked scrambled egg would be my extra meal. <laughs> I was I was going to suggest that you take those six sixlets and you leave them in your car for a day or two, and then try to eat them. Good God, uh, whatever the extra meal is, it's not staying down. All right, Brian. BMX Bandits. Oh yes, BMX Bandits. That movie is is pure bubble gum, and it's the bubble gum that used to come with the the baseball card. Uh, or the other way around so that you could mm -hmm. stick those cards in the spokes of your super badass BMX bike. All right, Cargill, how about uh, 
what food goes with junk food goes with your the hunter from the future <laughs> oh oh you know what pulled pork a nice pulled pork sandwich <laughs> i mean if you kind of feel like you should go with something italian there but no you need to you need just some raw meat slathered in sauce and uh uh, uh and it's it's just something truly prehistoric it's uh i i love that choice i would also accept canned sloppy joe's so that you could say <laughs> Yours world, he's the manwich. <laughs> oh, I hate you sometimes. You're crazy. <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, what kind of taboo meal, taboo breaking meal, would you serve with Blame It on Rio? <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> does, does a stomach pump count as a meal? <laughs> it's an accessory to a meal. I would uh, uh, I would go with uh, uh, I would serve half of a baked chicken uh, with a follow me here with with a with a, a fried egg laid over the top. So you've got kind of the uh, the the father and daughter together in one meal. Half a baked chicken, <laughs> and it gets all the ju- you just cut into you just cut into the yolk and you get the juices all over it. It's uh, it's wonderful. Oh. Or oh, because it is, it is blaming on Rio. You could take you could take some friends to a Brazilian steakhouse, which doesn't sound like junk food until you realize that you've tricked all of your vegan friends into going. So it's completely wrong from start to finish. Yes. All right. There we Except go. Except that those salad bars are amazing at those joints. This is true. Brian, what Halloween candy goes with Sophie's choice? Oh man, let me think about that. No, That's, no, don't. I, I want Bobby to just put crickets in there. <laughs> 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 All right. So um, let me ask you guys this, because I, I know and I appreciate it. You guys are fans, uh, are listeners of our show and fans of us personally. Um, Brian, I know <laughs> I know that you you send me money for rent every month. I don't even ask for it. You just send me money. I don't. I appreciate it, but you don't have to. Well, I'm, um, I'm trying to get you to send me my son back. So if you could just uh, <laughs> give me back my son not without my baby. <laughs> um, but uh, I, while Drew and Bobby and I highly appreciate the support that you've given us on the podcast and on the media's Del Social, uh, what is it you like about our show? I, you know, it's it's like what we do. I, I the simpatico nature is that you guys get a big kick when somebody on social media tells you I had never heard of this movie until I, you know, I heard it on your podcast. We, I get a lot of enjoyment out of the fact that, you know, as many movies as I watch, there are still huge gaps for me. So going through as systematically as, as you guys do is, is such a boon for me because I can add a bunch of stuff to my must see list that I had never heard of. So you guys are doing for me what I like to do for our listeners. So you basically, you would not, you wouldn't have a podcast if it wasn't for us is what you're saying. <laughs> It's it, you know it, it's interesting. You're right, even though ours was technically out first. You're absolutely oh, oh, right. Oh, yours was out years before, but it was it was Drew and I who inspired it. Well, no, yeah. I mean that's guys, guys. There's a word for that. It's called a paradox. Okay, it's called an homage. No, uh, but uh, but the re- the only reason I ask that is because at the beginning when we first started it, uh, obviously you guys are gonna like it because you're our friends. But what what one of you, uh, Brian, I think that you nailed is that like it. We wanted to appeal to anybody who was there in the 80s, like Cargill, who's 55, and we wanted it to appeal to like 25 year olds who didn't know that half these movies existed. And there's nothing wrong with not knowing it. You know, it's like it's good to learn these things. So, you know, we're we're really just trying to appeal to um, Drew's children, basically, is who we're doing the podcast for. Because really, when I talk about Caligula, 
It's for them. <laughs> <laughs> actually, you guys, uh, uh, I, I listen to you guys religiously. I actually have a, you guys post on Sunday nights, and I take that time to sit down and put together some of my models. And I, I put together models and listen to the show. Uh, Cuter! Uh, or plastic, both. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it is this Zen like hour and a half that I get to like have to myself before I go to work on Sunday nights because Sundays is when I start. Uh, but yeah, you guys always it's it's really great because I remember so much of the stuff uh, that you guys are talking about, particularly in this era, because I was I, I was a young kid with HBO at the time, so I saw a lot of this stuff, um, and uh, and I'm always wondering which things are worth revisiting and which things aren't and so a lot of times you'll mention something that'll get really excited about like oh i love carbon copy and then, <laughs> what? Hear, what? then hear you talk about it and then go oh i should never watch that again i thought you were and gonna say you- death trap or used cars <laughs> <laughs> oh no no because no I've, I've actually revisited those recently here i'll tell you the two movies you guys turned me on to recently that have been rewatched multiple times since you turned me on to them uh my bodyguard which i i have shown to 30 different people now uh and uh uh me and my wife a few months ago sat down and rewatched uh, my favorite year for the first time oh the best and so and i remembered loving that as a kid in fact we have an annual tradition based on that movie but i hadn't rewatched that movie we every christmas eve we watch love actually and we drink a bottle of wine and we get beschnonkered and then we go out on our peter o'toole walk in which we fill up a big glass of wine and walk around our neighborhood at three in the morning when nobody's up drinking wine it's the best i have some really good news for you though if if you're a big fan of my bodyguard and you're a big fan of my favorite year uh both are true wait wait until we get to my tutor and my science project no. <laughs> See, that's, that's that's why i'd never seen my bodyguard i thought my bodyguard was my chauffeur Oh, I forgot oh, it. God. Oh, I forgot one. You motherfucker. <laughs> that's why for years I'm like, I saw that. That's terrible. And then when you guys started talking about it, talking about it being good, I'm like, wait, what am I missing here? And when you described it, I'm like, I've never seen this film. I I thought my bodyguard was the one with the hot woman driver. Oh, my God. This movie, I need to see this now. I bought it that night and fell in love with it and uh, uh, then showed it to my wife the next day. And then ever since then, whenever people I know haven't seen it, it's like we're watching that right now. For me, this process is very strange because we're living this parallel life right now where the 80s are happening in real time for us. And it's basically it takes, you know, two and a half weeks to watch a month's worth of movies. I feel like we've got it all like hyper compressed and we're, we're having this thing happen. And what what is happening is you're right. There's that that memory that we have from when we saw these films originally. I realized how much of what I believe about film is based on the opinion of a 10 year old or an 11 year old or a 12 year old. And going back and watching some of these things, I'm having wildly different reactions in some cases and in other cases. And that 12-year-old knew what the fuck he was talking about. So it's really, it's fascinating to me the way we carry these things as if we are going to always feel that way about it. You're dodging the question, though, Drew, which is, will you or will you not cover the 1986 live-action video cassette My Pet Monster? Because I feel like that's as indelible to the 80s as anything else you've mentioned. Uh, not a chance. Not a chance. And in fact, if you bring it up again, I will have you removed from the studio. I think we should delete this entire fucking episode, frankly. Uh <laughs> 
No, look, some people want to Google circle jerk <laughs> and find a circle jerk. <laughs> I do think, though, uh, Drew talked me into it. I do think we will be covering the infamous television film The Day After. Ooh, yes. Yeah, I think I think talking about that, that's one of those things that if you're a kid of the 80s, man, that is as probably as big a moment as we had with media. Yeah. And and I would I would argue that it's like in 30 years when uh, you guys are doing uh, the the teens all over, uh, you guys are going to look back and have to discuss. Do we talk about these Netflix films? Are they relevant? Uh, And and some of those made for TV movies ended up being very relevant to the film landscape of the 80s. And I feel that that movie in particular, that movie scarred a lot of people. And and it's important to talk about. Yeah, uh, I, I don't. Yeah, we we risk you know blurring the lines if we tackle too many TV movies. And while there were several good TV movies in the eighties, uh, to open that can of worms would be prohibitively time consuming. So we're not going to. But the day after, and perhaps maybe a few others if they pop up. But that certainly seems important enough to include in the conversation. We're also going to be uh, including in a future episode uh, a review of the ET Atari twenty six hundred game. Ooh. <laughs> Wow, it's. I feel the same way Drew felt when I said I love carbon copy. Um, <laughs> that game's bad. Yeah, <laughs> that game is super bad. Can you bury a podcast in the desert in Arizona? Is that possible? Just dig a big hole. <laughs> yeah, but 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 Ernie Klein's going to make a documentary about digging it up. Oh, okay, fair enough. Yep. Well, I was going to throw out some. I thought we would close with Drew and I throwing out some potential junk food cinema films that uh, I off the top of our heads, you'll have to say yes, no, maybe, or no, we covered that. All right. Okay. Uh, okay. I okay. will start with an underseen Arthur Penn film called Dead of Winter. Oh, you, we might cover that. That's that, that's been brought up. That's a cool, cool call. Um, I would uh, nominate one. I believe we've talked about this already and uh, sort of a, a charming Little, little, little movie. High risk. Man, see, this is why I need this is why I need 80s all over in my life, because you guys are hitting on ones that I I am not aware yeah, of. Brian, you would like you'd like this one. It is a uh, ramshackle, surprisingly entertaining uh, a- action adventure where they go Drew, South America. It's just a bunch of guys who want to steal guns from South American warlords. It is um, Stuart Raffin and it is just fun. I I, heard, I learned about it from your podcast and and have been wanting to watch that one. The, though I will honestly say we before that we will probably do a, an episode on high risk, the 1990s Jet Li movie in which Jet Li makes fun of Jackie Chan. Um, yes, <laughs> that is that is slightly more likely. I want to I want to tra- I want to travel out of the 80s for just a second, if I may. Hold on, let me check if I have permission. I do. Uh, why don't you guys cover Hard Rain? Oh, that's take. Okay, as we say on our show, take a drink because we are definitely covering Hard Rain at some point. You know, you know, Brian. I let's let's just throw this out there. We're literally going into a month about heist movies, and we're looking for another heist movie. I think we just found it. I think you're right. I think we did find uh, find our finale. How about Vantage Point? Oh, Vantage Point! Oh, yeah, is good. yeah, yeah. Take a drink. I, I can't believe we haven't done Vantage Point. Actually, I could. I did we do that early or no, no, no? We didn't, but we've talked about it. That that's one we need to do. We have not done Vantage Point yet. We haven't even done Vanishing Point yet. So I mean, in the catalog, yeah, but that's not junk food. See, and I, I feel like it kind of is, but but that's uh, maybe it is. artsy junk food. Yeah, <laughs> create. You know, like Gordo's used to make those really elaborate donuts. 
They was like they almost look like little uh, art projects. Like that's that's vanishing point. There's one that I'm going to suggest. It's kind of outside your your typical, but man, I would love to hear what you guys did with the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. Oh, oh my god! Oh. Don't no, they can't because that's my favorite Peter Greenway film. What is that? Eighty seven? Yeah, eighty eight. It's near the end of the decade, but one of the films that like made me realize that oh. Art films are not just like boring and for old people. Like I can get it too, you know. I love that film. Why don't you guys cover Tremors? No, we have not covered Tremors yet. I I kind of want to do a late '80s, early '90s horror um, uh, collection because in my head, Tremors lives in the same place with Warlock, and I kind of want to do those movies from that era when horror was getting experimental. But we definitely need to do Tremors, and uh, and I was just reminded last night how badly we need to do Warlock. Well, Tremors, as I rem- as I mentioned, Tremors is 1990, so legally that doesn't cause a problem. If uh, <laughs> I. I feel like we're just going to have to have you guys on every episode of Junk Food Cinema where we cover an 80s movie. Oh, well, you know, uh, you know what? Finally, an invitation would be nice. Yes. <laughs> wait, wait. We're, con- we're consulting with our lawyers. They're nodding. They think that's OK. That is that is OK. Well, you guys know you're both welcome on our show whenever you're in town. We would love to have you. Or or we'll do the uh, we'll come out of our shells as total Luddites. And now that Bobby's shown us that we can do this even when people aren't in the same town as us. Maybe we can make that happen faster. This is sacrilege. I'm always fascinated by actors who are kind of at the end of things. And there is one of one of the icons, one of the great action icons. His last movie technically dipped into the 80s. Uh, I'd love to hear you guys cover the hunter. I was I. Oh, my God, Drew. As soon as you started talking that way, I was like, he's talking about the hunter. That's got to be Steve McQueen's oh, last movie. Nice. The hunter. No, I. I was totally off. I thought you were talking about Kroll. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't you dare badmouth Kroll, motherfucker. Uh, Excuse me. You're talking to the co-host of 80s All Over. I'll have you know that we have 48 followers, listeners, and I like Kroll. T-Y-V-N. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but on his back, Scott has a glaive tattoo that is <laughs> literally the size of a manhole cover. It's well, crazy. what's weird is that when I, I looked at the tattoo and it was done, it's a glove. <laughs> the guy totally didn't know what I was talking about. He put a glove on there. I got to share my favorite stupid detail about Krull since we're talking about Krull briefly. I love the fact that they completely redubbed the actress's dialogue in the same way they did to Sam Jones and Flash Gordon because, and I quote, a universal executive thought that Americans would not accept a British accent in a fantasy yeah, movie. That's absurd. And and that woman is the beautiful Lisette Anthony. And I believe it was a Columbia release, not Universal. So, oh, you're you're right, actually. All right, so I, you know I what? That. Have you guys take that, Doctor Strange boy? I just finished watching with the boys this week. Uh, they were here for spring break, and we watched Psycho, and then we watched Psycho Two. Oh, and Psycho Two! I'm in a Richard Franklin mood. Have you guys done Psycho Two or Road Games? <laughs> Uh, we've done road games. So we've, we did it. Uh, we did a whole episode early on on Everett DeRoche. Everett DeRoche is one of my favorite screenwriters. Um, and he uh, so when he passed away, we did a whole episode on him. We didn't talk about Link in that. Um, I, 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 I 
love everything that DeRoche touched, uh, even the stuff that doesn't work. I just love what he was doing. And uh, But Link, for those of you that haven't watched Link, it's it's literally a movie in which Elizabeth Shue is trapped in a house uh, with a murderous cigar-smoking, suit-wearing monkey. And it, orangutan, orangutan, and an anterid stamp. <laughs> And turn stamp for a while. Um, let's be honest. Uh, stamp, stamp gets stamped. But um, it is, yeah. No, I, I do love Link. We did cover Road Games. We haven't covered Psycho Two, but we've talked about it a couple of times. Oh, so good. How about this for uh, for an episode? You cover uh, uh, Link, Monkey Shines, and Shockma. Oh, Shockma. Yeah. Oh. Oh, you know what? You can call it. Primate Monday by Scott Weinberg. I <laughs> know uh, I'm definitely crediting you for that. You you know what I'm I, I'm very curious to see you guys revisit was something we revisited along the lines uh, when you guys get to 87 and talk about Project X. Uh, did you ever share that with your kids, Drew? I have not. Oh, nor do oh. I believe I'm going to. Oh, that movie's so good. It's but traumatic for people. It's one of those that people who remember it. Typically remember it with a stricken look on their face. Wait, 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 Cargill, when's the last time you saw Project X? Uh, I, sh- I watched it again about six months ago. Oh, okay. Then then you should know that it's horrible. <laughs> it's not horrible. That is not true at all. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I will, no, no, I will gladly re I will gladly revisit it. There's a lot of, of 80s sci-fi mainstream stuff that I haven't seen since they came. I haven't seen Space Camp since it came out. That's that's the thing about Project X, which is so great, is you remember that really traumatic scene in the middle that breaks your heart. And what everyone forgets is how fist in the air triumphant the last 20 minutes of that movie is. There's a there's a moment in that movie where one of the monkeys does something that everybody jumps up out of their seat or puts their fist in the air and goes, yeah, it's so good. It's so good. It's a chimp. You like orangutan, chimp, monkey. They're- Look, I'm using monkey in in a very you general term. If I, you if I know. could, if I could wrangle us back to, I know. <laughs> if I could wrangle us back to Richard Franklin for a second, I know we got off topic. <laughs> uh, so Cargill, shall we? Uh, so let's bring us back on topic. We should just do a, a Star Grove. Star Grove. <laughs> <laughs> I recently for the first time, saw the movie by Richard Franklin that is probably my favorite of his now. We definitely will have to cover. And it's very relevant. Yes, very relevant to you guys because it stars a first-rate actor named Dabney Coleman. First rate. Brian, I want precisely no more than 45 seconds on the awesomeness of Cloak & Dagger. Go. Cloak & Dagger is the sweetest movie of the 80s that I think I have ever seen. It's heartbreaking and at the same time so wonderful and funny and it's... I, I I loved it so much. Ah, uh, damn it. When this when when Cloak and Dagger came out, they put out a Cloak and Dagger board game that came with a a, a pewter Jack Flack, and I carried that around in my pocket for a year. Yo, pewter, I'm telling you, if it gets into your bloodstream, it's dangerous, man. It's like mercury. It makes you sound like Scott Weinberg. Wait a minute. No, no. That's True. what it is. I'm doomed. When's the last time you saw Cloak and Dagger, Drew? Because I have not seen it since the 80s. No, I haven't in a long time, and I'm really looking forward to the rewatch. Yeah, uh, to those who don't know, real quick, Cloak and Dagger is basically a Hitchcock Jr. type movie. Henry Thomas of E.T. gets embroiled in a uh, film noir plot involving a microchip that's hidden in a video game. Dabney Coleman plays two roles. 
So it's automatically amazing. He plays dad and he plays imaginary dad. He plays Dadney Coleman. Oh, oh god damn it. That's what they should have called it. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that this podcast has devolved into something, something resembling a tipsy, not drunken, tipsy frat house party. It's it's metastasized. I think that is the correct word. Guys, it's (laughs) it's junk food all over. Yes. Uh, What I would like to do, we now go live to Al Pacino with something. I just want to say, having the junk food cinema guys here today made me feel real good about. The future of terrible movies. I can't wait to do Revolution. I hope you guys come back. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Thank you, guys. To all 48 of our listeners, uh, if you uh, have not checked out Junk Food Cinema, please do. They are uh, not just fun guys. They're mushrooms. <laughs> That's what my mom keeps saying. So thank you very much for having us. We very much appreciate the crossover and uh, – I don't have to tell you guys to listen to 80s all over because that's why you're here in the first place. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having us, guys. Thank you. This was first rate. <laughs>